This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, May 13th. I'm Rob Bluey. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Today we have Rob's interview with Victor Davis Hansen, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of the book, The Case for Trump. We're also featuring Rachel's conversation with two members of the Republican Study Committee about why the Green New Deal threatens your freedom. And we will close out today's show with your letters, and Virginia Allen has a sports-themed good news story right here in Washington, D.C. Before we begin, we'd like to ask you to help us spread the word about the Daily Signal podcast. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends and family. That will help us make sure we are continuing to grow and reach more listeners. Stay tuned for today's show, coming up next. We're coming to you from The Daily Signal. I'm with Victor Davis Hansen, who is at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, author of the new book, The Case for Trump, and a columnist for The Daily Signal. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your book. It's a fascinating read. I want you to tell us uh, why you chose to write it. I've asked myself that. Um, Well, I had a good editor at Basic Books, and I just finished a book on World War II, and I had a contracted other book, and she said, as a person who did not vote for Trump and would not vote, is there any way I could be persuaded And I said something. She goes, why don't you put that in writing? So I had never written on a contemporary political, at least in book form. So I wanted to say that I had not met Trump. I I didn't want a job, obviously, in the White House. I don't live in Washington. So could I, as a disinterested analyst, but somebody who voted for him, could I analyze why he got elected, how he's done, and why people hate him so much? And that's what the book's about. Let's take some of those, those points then. Yeah. So how has he done? I mean, we hear about the economy and we hear about some of the other tremendous success this country is having. And yet at the same time, his approval ratings aren't that great yeah. at the current moment. And he's constantly under attack from the media and Democrats. He is. Well, that's a two-part question. As far as he's doing things that are kind of insidious that we don't appreciate. For example, the Department of Education is tr- finally starting to address... Uh, the idea that student debt is not the responsibility of universities. They encourage students to take out these horrible loans and then they jack their tuition above the rate of inflation. Or that we've lost the Fourth and Fifth Amendments and the First Amendment protections on campus. So he does things like that that he doesn't get credit for in addition to the foreign policy and the economic. Why do they hate him? Part of it is if he succeeds it's a referendum on his resume and their resume. He's the first president that never had military political experience. Second, there's an element of snobbishness, especially in the Never Trump movement. He's from Queens, the way he dresses, his comportment. They consider that so unpresidential that positions that they have embraced their entire life, if he has his fingerprints on them, they disown. And part of it is, I guess we call it creative destruction, creative obstruction, creative chaos, that the way Washington works, we saw that in a Peggy Noonan column that was almost endorsing the status quo way things work, but Trump comes in, and if you want to get out of the climate accord in Paris, you just get out of it, cancel the Iran deal, move the embassy. Everybody understood, tell NATO to start paying their fair share. Everybody understood that the proverbial cat had to be belled, but nobody wanted to do it. So he was not invested 
and that value system, so he did it. And then people, like the proverbial gunslinger, he comes in and solves a problem, and then, my God, why did you pull your gun? And, and then they want him to leave when the problem's over with. He certainly has transformed Washington in that way. I mean, he's made draining the swamp and returning yeah. power back to yeah. uh, uh, individuals a, a priority. Do you think that that's going to stick? I mean, can that last beyond a Trump presidency? That, that it seems to be the proverbial $64,000 question. What happens when he leaves? My own view is the idea that somebody that would embody in contemporary terms the worldview of Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney is not going to ever again carry Michigan, Pennsylvania in the way that Trump did. And by that I mean, whether we like it or not, the Democratic Progressive Party, neo-socialists, is very wealthy people and very poor people. And this middle class in between is what Republicanism is today. And what they want is somebody that they feel not just ideologically akin to, but they feel fights for them. Worst thing that can happen for a candidate is to saw off the limb under which is under which his base is sitting. So with Romney and, and McCain there was a sense that if you attacked Reverend Wright in 2008 or you were so angry that Candy Crawley had hijacked that debate in 2012, you, you really didn't know whether Romney or McCain was going to support you. McCain would say, now wait a minute, don't go that, and that with Trump that created Trumpism. With Trump, it's, we cut the leash and he's out there, he's fighting. And I think that will be part of the idea of the Republican Party. I think the idea that we're going to win, we would rather lose nobly than win ugly, because we play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. I don't think that's going to, that, that is the trajectory to socialism. I want to get to socialism in a moment, but I do want to uh, ask you one more question. You mentioned that uh, how he was elected. Yes. There's a lot of interest right now about whether or not that same coalition that he put together in 2016 will be there for him in 2020. Do you think that those people who came out to support him in 2016 will do so again? Yeah, I do for a couple of reasons. One, he has a record, and except for closing the border, which he tried to do, and debt, he's pretty much fulfilled his promises. And then number two, he's not running in a popularity contest. So the closest thing to a blue-collar candidate is Joe Biden. But Joe Biden of today is not the Joe Biden of 30 years ago. So he's been mortgaging his past to the AOC party. And whether he likes it or not, if he were to be nominated, I don't see how he can emerge unscathed from the primaries, the debates, and the convention without endorsing in some part or parcel reparations and fanicide, wealth tax, uh, Green Deal, 16-year-old voting, ex-felons voting, or felons voting, none of the whom, none of these positions poll 51%, especially in these swing states. That, that's certainly true. Well, let's talk about some of uh, this idea behind socialism. I mean, yeah. it's a topic that's on the mind of a lot of conservatives. They're concerned about this growing support that they see, particularly among young people, but, yeah. you know, on the left in general. Yeah. What is fueling it? Well, I, I don't know if they know when they say they're for socialism what socialism entails, but we know the conditions that make people liberal and conservative. What makes people conservative is that you have to be responsible for someone other than yourself 
and that you have mortgaged your present happiness for future security. By that I mean when young people get married, it takes the concentration off themselves. They have a commitment. When they have children, they have responsibilities to other people. When they buy a home, they have a mortgage. So they postpone the satisfaction of the appetites. But when you have 1.5 trillion in student debt and you have a life of Julia pajama boy idol and people are not getting married, they're not having children, then this young hipster model is interested in all of these boutique issues, but they're not the, the issues that societies and civilizations are based on, which are, do we have enough fuel? Do we have enough food? Do we have enough security? Are we financially sound? Uh, do we, are we replacing the species? Or do we have sovereignty? And that's what we need to do. You won't get rid of socialism until you address that lifestyle of young people. And part of it's indoctrination in college, part of it's a residual of the 60s generation, part of it was the 2008 disruption in the economy, part of it is the universities that not just indoctrinate people, but they're sort of like in uh, 19th, 18th century indentured servitude. They get people to come in and mortgage their future with these student loans and then uh, they have a hold over them. Or they, and it's, we've got to break up that on a multi-level. Multi you know, one of the things that you write about frequently is uh, the state of California. Yeah. It's among the most popular things for our Daily Signal audience. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, very interested to see what uh, the Golden State is, is up to and doing. Yeah. Uh, can you share with us about the state of affairs here in California and what concerns you most? We've got to start with the premise that in California, the more they raise taxes, the more they want, and the worse public services become. By that I mean we have the highest basket of sales, gasoline, and income tax, and we're rated about 45 in test scores and about 48, 49th in infrastructure. So where does the money go? It goes towards redistribution. We have the highest number of illegal aliens of any state. We have one of the costliest pension systems. But these problems are caused in themselves that we're a medieval society with a coastal strip from La Jolla to Berkeley, of the wealthiest people in the history of civilization. Uh, the per capita income of San Mateo County is the highest in the nation. Three trillion dollars of market capitalization, just two or three companies. And then regulations that are created by that class and rules and taxation that drive the middle class out, but help the poor that are romantic. The middle class has no romance. And so out of that menu, it's very depressing because we have a $13 billion surplus right now. And what's California's attitude after the elimination of state and local tax deductions in a high tax state? You think, my gosh, we only have 160,000 returns and 40 million that are paying half of all the income tax. Now they can't write it off. They're all going to go to Nevada or Florida, so we better at least lower tax. No. Their attitude is, let's get an inheritance back tax back after 40 years. Let's tax everything on the Internet with a state tax. Let's tax sugar drinks. Let's tax restaurant bills. And where does this come from? And it comes from a bunch of very wealthy people 
in La La Land with 70 degree weather 365 days a year that don't know where their fuel, their food, their granite counters or aluminum refrigerators come from and they have enough money not to worry about it and they want to help the poor in the abstract, maybe it's a psychological mechanism for never being with them, never putting their kids in the same school with them, never living next to them, and then never, and then despising the taste and the behavior of the middle class. So it's a toxic menu, California, and the only thing that will break it is, it's anything that can't go on forever won't go on forever. And there's, a, there's an emerging Latino middle class and they're asking, especially in the Central Valley, why do we pay the highest kilowatt rate in the country when we have all this natural gas? Why do we have the highest gasoline prices in the country? Why do we not have plentiful water in our lakes? Why are we laying out to the ocean or paying $100,000 per fish to replant salmon in the San Joaquin River? So they're asking practical questions and the answers they're getting is, shut up, we have open borders, we're there to give amnesty, and you have more in common with somebody in Oaxaca than you do with somebody in the lower middle class who's not Hispanic. I don't think that message is going to be uh, continually persuasive. Well, we can certainly hope that uh, there is a challenging of those, uh, those the status quo yeah. here in California yeah. uh, for the benefit of everybody. You have been somebody who's been critical of the media. Um, yeah. When your book came out, not only did you have maybe some personal experience of, of what media... Well, I was called a Nazi by, exactly. re, by Republican. What, what is it? How can conservatives effectively combat this? I mean, we did so at the Heritage Foundation by creating our own news outlet. You yes. obviously have yeah. a weekly column and do yeah. other things in the media. What would you say to our, our, our listeners or viewers? What's your advice? Well, where I was attacked were three places... The worst. It was the New Yorker magazine, the Washington Post, the New York Times. But you can go, I'll give you an example. I did an Epic Times podcast. I would not knew anything, that, I didn't know they had podcasts. I barely knew the Epic. Next thing I knew, it had 500,000 you know, listeners. 500,000 people, that's probably more than the New York Times circulation in, in most of California. So the same thing with media. and and uh, social media. So there's ways now of getting out the message without CBS, PBS, NPR, New York Times. That's our only hope. I will say in passing though, the people who have been the most venomous and vicious and were the most prone to use the Nazi slur, you're a Nazi by writing a book for Trump-Hitler, was the Never Trump Right. I was attacked in the bulwark by Gabriel Schoenfeld who said that I was Martin Heidegger writing for basically Trump-Hitler. And then I was, I think Charles Sykes said that I was going to be taken down for, because I was a grifter. This is somebody who, you know, doesn't live in Washington or New York, never met Donald Trump, wanted to write an analysis of why people voted for him. So that, that was a shock. I, I, and that was really disturbing to see the Republican establishment or the former Republican establishment stoop to that level. Do, do never Trumpers have any, you know, sway though anymore? I mean, do, are do no. You I think, think? that there. I think you and I know, and your listeners will probably agree that of all the people we meet who said I don't like Hillary Clinton in 2016, 
but there was something about Trump's comportment that prevents me from voting. If you ask those same people again, it's, a, it's not even a hesitation. I'm going to vote for him in 2020. Whereas if you talk to people in 2020 who voted for Trump, you never hear, I'm not going to vote for him. 2016, they're never going to say, I, I'm not going to vote this time for him. So what I'm getting at is they had zero, they had a, very little influence in 2016, but they have none now. And I think that's, that's pushed them into a sort of an, a nihilism where their only role is to get conservatives angry and to be, I think they feel that Trumpism is an, to use a metaphor, is like an eggshell. And they're tapping and irritating it all the while, and they don't see any fissures. But at some magical moment, if they just keep at it, one last tap, all of a sudden the eggshell implodes, and then they say, see, it's all destroyed, and I'm going to come in like the proverbial phoenix, and out of the ashes, you listen to me, and I can rebuild the party. As if Mitt Romney and John McCain and Jeb Bush were going to win Pennsylvania or Michigan. Victor Davis Hanson, the book again is called The Case for Trump. You can find his columns at dailysignal.com. Thanks so much for being with Thank us. Thank you. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Last week, I had the opportunity to interview two conservative members of the House, Republican Study Committee Chairman Mike Johnson and Congressman Jeff Duncan, who is co-chairman of the House Energy Action Team. We talked about the Green New Deal and their concerns. We're playing a portion of the interview on today's podcast. It starts with Congressman Johnson. This is something that should concern every single American because it will impact their, their pocketbooks, it will impact their families. It would, in a literal sense, change the very nature of our country. Uh, it's a, a broad swath, a swipe at the U.S. economy and our, and our underlying foundational principles. It is a, a guise, I think, to usher in on the principles of socialism, and we need to recognize this. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it's a redistribution um, mechanism to redistribute the wealth and um, and power, centralized power at the, at the federal government. And we already know the government's tentacles are in every part of our lives, but the Green New Deal will give the government even uh, longer, broader, stronger tentacles uh, to be so invasive. And that's what big government does, that's what progressives do, and that's what the Green New Deal does. So you all in the RSC just authored a 13-page takedown of the Green New Deal. Kind of go through that takedown and give us a few points of what's included in that. So the Green New Deal, as it was introduced in Congress, is 14 pages long. Our takedown was 13 pages. We could have elaborated even further because there's so much in this to take issue with. Um, our staff uh, are some of the best on the Hill. We had members involved in this. And uh, it's a pretty comprehensive um, I guess summary of what it what this Green New Deal would do for the country. So we go through um, the that it would add to the American people. I brought a little graphic. We put out this this little uh, document called the we call it the Greedy New Steel, right? But just by the numbers, real quick, a couple of top line things here. It would add 300 times more toxic waste 
from solar farms over nuclear. You know, uh, part of the Green New Deal, the initiative is they want wind and solar. We want to get to zero um, carbon emissions in 10 years. First of all, it's scientifically impossible to do but, that. But wait a minute, the Earth's going to end according to Right. The Earth's going in in 10 years, according to AOC, in 12 years. That's uh, crazy. <laughs> we, we have a very short time to accomplish this, Jeff. <laughs> uh, but but if, even if it were possible, the cost would be so enormous that it would literally bankrupt every family in America almost, except the super wealthy, right? Uh, a 286% potential increase in the energy bills per household. And we know this would have a disparate impact on low-income households because yeah, they mean, already pay more the than their share. issue that... Yeah. that the American people to know is that um, as a percentage of the income, lower income people, as energy rates go up, they're paying a higher percentage of their income for their just their basic electrical needs, and uh, it impacts them the most. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the other thing, that the big headline, is that 50% of our economy would pass through the hands of the federal government. Mm -hmm. How frightening is that? It's, it's not even an achievable set of goals, because in order to go to all that wind and solar, Jeff, you know, you would have to take a landmass the state of California in order to, to put all that apparatus out. It's like out 115 there. million acres that it would take, <laughs> right. and uh, right. it's just unfathomable. Um, but when you talk about lowering your carbon, carbon footprint and meeting our energy needs, even the governor of Connecticut, um, instead of bringing nuclear reactors offline and decommissioning those, decided to go for relicensing because he knew that they need to meet their electrical needs. And in order to lower his carbon footprint, nuclear power has to be a part of that. So now you see a very liberal governor nuclear power, which has got to be a part of the matrix here. You know, I love wind and solar, Mike, and I think you do too. Sure. We also know what works, fossil fuels, hydro, nuclear power to provide that 24-7 baseload power to meet our demands always on for the manufacturers and for us at home. Uh, we want to cut the lights on or read to our children or, or have a cold beverage out of the refrigerator. And manufacturers like BMW or Boeing, which I visited recently, um, they need that power to be on when they get ready to make the next Boeing aircraft. So. We're all the above, folks. We even the president's vision for not just energy independence, but energy dominance, is, as has been our new uh, our new phraseology and our new new goal. And and but we we achieve that as Jeff's uh, alluded to here through private sector innovation, not government regulation. It's the regulation of the government that gets in the way of these innovations. And even though our energy uh, use has increased in the United States over the last several years, our carbon emissions have gone down. That's not because of the government's heavy hand. It's not because we entered into the Paris us because right. Right. you know we're good stewards of, of the environment as Americans and innovators and uh, and we see the future you know people that are investing in energy they're investing in wind and solar they're also investing investing in um, conservation efforts uh, they're encouraging their employees to be more conservation minded I remember my dad in the 70s during the, the oil crisis um, telling us to turn the lights off when we left the room and you know walk when we could yeah so Americans are seeing that and you're seeing the innovators um, really step up to the plate and I was down at uh, Clemson University as a leader in uh, looking at our electrical grid and trying to you know, really combat any threats, whether it's an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, or uh, looking at cyber attacks. But they also have what's called a drive train facility there. They're testing everything um, that a wind turbine could be put into, uh, any sort of torque on the blades, uh, longevity. And it's one of only two facilities in the nation, one in Colorado and one in, in Charleston, but it's uh, run by Clemson University collaboration with a lot of private sector folks. So 
um, you're seeing innovators step up and say, if we're going to use wind power, we need to make sure they're safe. We need to make sure they're efficient. We need to see how they're connected to the grid and uh, understand how that may affect the grid with um, spikes in power or if one of these units fail, now, what does that mean for the power supply? And so you've got innovators out there, um, both public and private, trying to make everything better. Congressman Johnson, you have a resolution that's working to dismantle the Green New Deal. Can you tell us about that and how it would work? Yeah, there's a resolution that we'll be filing here in short order. Um, we'll probably have most of the RSC signed on to that. We have 142 members in the Republican Study Committee, so we're the largest caucus of conservatives in Congress, and that's an important voice to put behind this. While they're having their rallies and trying to drum up support, we'll be pointing to the real facts of this, and this is a, a resolution that, that lays out, basically summarizes in legislative form what our 13-page takedown, as the Washington Times called it, of the Green New Deal does. It points out the cost, the absurd uh, notion that we would have to essentially get rid of all uh, moving vehicles in the country, anything that is, uh, has any kind of uh, emission at all uh, under this deal would have to be, would be taken away from the American people. Yeah, I mean, um, how's Tulsi Gabbard going to get to Hawaii? If, <laughs> she won't be able to get you know, home. She can't fly and, uh, you know, trains are probably... No real service. They're no more eating no uh, hot dogs with maggots in them, so... Well, and, and even, you know, we point out in, the, in this uh, resolution, for example, even if we were able somehow to confiscate land the size of the state of California to build all these solar uh, wind farms, for example, um, it takes 800 metric tons of concrete to build uh, a uh, one, one of, of the largest water. emitters of, uh, yes. of carbon <laughs> right. um, that we're trying to lower our footprint is concrete is production. concrete, right? right. Yeah. So you would add so much in terms of carbon emissions to produce the concrete in order to put the the, uh, the, the wind panels up, uh, windmills up, and they're not reliable because we can't force the wind to blow, we can't force the sun to shine, and everywhere that they've tried to do this to go, you know, to rely heavily on these um, the, these alternative sources, it's been a disaster. They've had scale blackouts, and this is South Australia, some parts of Germany. Uh, we just can't go down this road, and I think they're using this, some of these Democrats, I think, some of our colleagues are using this as a campaign as Jeff said, to promise things to people so that they'll vote for them. But we have a responsibility to point out the facts. And I think in the Republican Study Committee, at least, the conservatives in Congress are anxious to do that very thing. If you would like to listen to the rest of our interview, visit DailySignal.com. We'll be right back with this week's Letters to the Editor. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Rachel, who's up first? Jordan Blackwood writes... Dear Daily Signal, about Kelsey Bowler's video report on how federal regulations hurt a Habitat for Humanity chapter, there are precious few things that the government should regulate. This is an example of how socialism is creeping in and taking away our organization's rights to serve the people around them how they see fit. And Paul Singbush of San Diego writes about our recent interview with Miranda Finney. I really appreciated the brief interview on the podcast with the intern who was adopted. So many of those in the liberal media have this preconception that Christians care only about babies in the womb, but not afterward. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. 
I am blessed to come from a lengthy line of historic Protestants on both sides of my family. Not only is my daughter adopted, but so are two of my cousins. I continue to appreciate the work that you all do at The Daily Signal. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Virginia Allen joins us to talk about this week's good news story. Virginia, what do you have for us today? Thanks, Rob. This week's good news story comes to you right from the heart of Washington, D.C., the White House. All throughout last week, President Trump recognized athletes and sports teams for their accomplishments, beginning with the presentation of the Commander-in-Chief trophy to the Army football team, the Black Knights. With us today are 28 seniors on the team who will soon graduate, become second lieutenants, and enter different branches of the Army, including infantry, armor, field artillery, and air defense artillery. Wherever your country needs you, we know you will serve with integrity, loyalty, honor, courage, and an unbreakable will to win, win, win. We love that sound. Don't we love that word? That's a great word. You know it well. Armies always, and this great army of ours, always fights to victory, always. To the entire Black Knights team, congratulations once again on your historic victories and keep on that path to just uh, winning and making us all very proud of you because we are all very, very proud of you. Later that same day, President Trump presented the Medal of Freedom to Tiger Woods, who, as many of our listeners I'm sure know, just won the Masters for the fifth time. Tiger was only 21 when he won the Masters for the first time, and now at the age of 43, he has accomplished this feat once again. It was an emotional event, especially as Tiger gave his remarks. I just want to say thank you again. This is um, an honor. I know that I'm the the fourth golfer to have received this award. Um, The late Arnold Palmer, uh, the great Jack Nicklaus, and um, Charlie Sifford, who is... I always called him grandpa because he was like the grandpa I never had. And I ended up <clears throat> becoming so close with him that uh, I ended up naming my son Charlie after him. So to have been uh, chosen as, as the next golfer um, after Charlie is uh, truly remarkable. So thank you again and thank you, Mr. President. And on Thursday, President Trump welcomed the Red Sox to the White House for the World Series celebration. As a Red Sox fan myself, I was particularly excited about this event. I was actually able to attend, and I can honestly say that when I arrived, I kind of felt like a kid in a candy shop. It was a beautiful day, and they had a band playing. Uh, They held the event on the back lawn of the White House, and there was just a lot of energy and excitement. And for me, my favorite moment was when J.D. Martinez, he's a Red Sox outfielder, and hitter who played a really critical role in helping the Red Sox win the World Series last year. J.D. stood up and he presented the president with a gift. It was a jersey with the number 18 and Trump written on the back. I just want to say thank you, Mr. President, for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be honored today here at the White House. 
and I know celebrating a Red Sox victory is tough for you, given that you're a Yankee fan and all. <laughs> but we really want to say thank you for your hospitality today. And we brought you a gift. Thank you. This wow. Red Sox jersey. Wow. For you. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. With all these events, it's really nice to see the president recognizing the hard work of these athletes and to take a moment to pause as a nation and honor the work of these individuals and these teams because sports is something that creates a lot of unity in our nation. It allows us to put our, our political differences aside and enjoy cheering for the teams that we love. Virginia, I'm so glad you had the opportunity to visit, and thanks for sharing that uplifting story. I think you're so right that sports are a unifying part of our culture, and it's uh, nice to see that President Trump is taking the opportunity to celebrate those athletes, not just this past week, but many in the past as well, and recognizing their contributions. We appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely. No, it, it really is nice. And, you know, as as a Red Sox fan, I, I won't miss an opportunity to talk about the Sox. So thank <laughs> well, you, Rob. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast comes to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network, along with all of our podcasts. The shows can be found at DailySignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa Flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. It means a lot to us and helps us spread the word to others. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.